This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical or legal advice. Always follow your local policies, procedures, and protocols when functioning in your respective profession. Additionally, the views expressed by the speakers and owners of this podcast are their own and do not represent the views of their respective employers. Listener discretion is advised. Alert Medic 1 response. Ken, Josh, and Mustafa here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic 1 podcast. And we're recording. So, uh, hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us again. So uh, before we get into recording with uh, Amy Morrow, who's our guest today, I just wanted to make one announcement. So I'm sure you've noticed Cody joined us for the last episode with Lindsay, and he's been working a lot with us. So uh, we are happy to announce that Cody is now back on the team. Uh, we, uh, uh, Cody, if you want to give a brief background, uh, I mean, I'm sure some of our folks listen, already remember, but if you just give a background on you know your experience and uh you know, kind of what you bring to the team, and then we'll uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, I mean, if it's not obvious, I'm I'm a native Marylander, uh, and I've, I actually come from I'm a transplant. I come from Texas. I this is year I don't know eighteen nineteen for me in EMS uh, career that started out uh, when I was nineteen in the military as a medic. Uh, I spent eight years uh, doing that stuff. Got out, um, went through civilian uh, paramedic training. Uh, spent the next five ish years or so. Uh, with a ground service and working my way up through the uh, through the ranks there, I got recruited to uh, an air medical position there outside of Austin and uh, transferred inside the company to come up here to Baltimore. And I've been in Baltimore since about uh, 2019. Nice. And we met teaching together, and 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 uh, I think Cody and I just have a good dynamic teaching together. And I'm really excited to have him back on the team. Uh, Ken... Nerds really work well together. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Nerds that can deliver well, though, hopefully. Uh, at least the evaluation say so. Um, so Ken's not going to be able to join us today, unfortunately, but of course, Josh is here. Uh, we are very excited to talk to Amy. Th- Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, one of the topics that Cody actually really um, uh, specializes in, maybe is not a good term, but a lot of the work that he does uh, has to do with leadership. Um, and one of the things that, uh, the unique perspectives is when we talk about leadership, oftentimes we don't have someone at the policy level, like the work that you've done. Uh, so we're really excited to talk to you. If you don't mind, uh, just give a, you know, a background of who you are, where you come from, and then we'll go from there. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm Amy Morrow. I was born and raised in Washington, DC here on Capitol Hill, where I still live. And I've spent most of my career in D.C. government and politics with a focus on public safety. So I started my career working for the D.C. Council, um, then started to specialize in police oversight and have also worked for a couple of mayors and got really into uh, EMS work during the Adrian Fenty administration. And I'm sure we'll get into that um, during our conversation. Um, I'm an attorney, and so I've worked as a general counsel. And uh, in 2015, I was asked to join the Bowser administration after Muriel Bowser was elected and to help them recruit a new fire chief. And so I did that um, as a consultant. And then when Gregory Dean came to town from Seattle, um, was talked into becoming his chief of staff. Um, and so I did that job for eight years. I loved it, um, uh, but eight years is a long time in that kind of 24-7 on-call role. 
And so uh, when I was ready to leave, I wasn't ready entirely to to let go of um, that work and the department. And so I decided to revive the DC Fire and EMS Foundation. And so I've been doing that uh, as a volunteer actually since March and um, consulting part-time for income while I grow the foundation. Okay. So, uh, and forgive me. So you said you were the chief of staff for the fire chief or is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Got it. For our listeners that, and and I know that I just made this last minute edit, but we did did talk about it before recording. Um, Are you able to kind of just describe uh, I mean, without going into civics 101, where, you know, where the fire department generally, or maybe just for DC fits into the general governing structure. Cause I think a lot of folks don't have that insight. Sure. Well, the fire department is a executive branch agency, um, like schools, police, all the others. And the fire chief in the district is a sworn position and he reports to the mayor. Um, the mayor has a deputy mayor structure, so he uh, most regularly is reporting to the de- deputy mayor for public safety, um, but that's how it works. So we don't have a, a commissioner system or um, a panel or anything like that. It's it's fire chief is the leader of the agency and reports to the mayor. Okay. And uh, how did your, when you say you were the chief of staff, do the other, like, I guess the deputy chiefs answer to you and then answer to, and, or where do you, I guess in the rank structure, how, do, how does that work? Now, so when I was chief of staff, uh, Chief Gregory Dean decided to appoint me as the civilian equivalent of an assistant fire chief. And so the assistant fire chief level is right below the fire chief. I reported directly to him and there were, the number varied, but there were several of us who basically had our own bureaus. Um, and so my direct reports were um, a lot of civilian administrative agencies so that or divisions so the general counsel media relations data analysis labor relations um, EEO HR for a time a period of time um, but as chief of staff I also um, sort of was a partner with the fire chief in helping him uh, manage strategy making sure that his decisions were carried out agency-wide um, I helped coordinate the assistant chiefs a lot in terms of the work that we did together as a team. Um, and so I had my direct responsibilities, but I also had um, similar to a number two responsibility in terms of the chief of staff role. When I think helps. of chief of but staff. I, I didn't yeah. have I didn't have any sworn people reporting to me directly. OK, when I think of chief of staff, I think of Leo McGarry in the West Wing. That's my that's my frame yes. of reference. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, guys, if there's any questions, just just, just hop in. I uh, I don't want to I don't want to monopolize the conversation. Um, Run it down as I go. Yeah, uh, no, no. This is just so interesting. Go ahead, Josh. So and just to make sure that this isn't, you know, like exclusive. Uh, actually, actually, I, I bring that this isn't broad as in like all count or government based fire services are like this, because I, I believe the one I work for does not have a civilian um administrator that is directly tied to the chief um i know we work within a county council we have our uh fire and emergency services council meetings they like have their own thing and then we have our fire chief an executive officer who is a sworn person and everyone else below them minus one person is a sworn member of the uh the career side of the department so i, I know this is 
pretty, I guess, maybe exclusive to uh, D.C. I don't know if other city fire departments are like this. But yeah, I, I understand the questions because it is a little unusual. And I did have to frequently explain my role um, because it is not typical in a, a fire department or a paramilitary organization. Um, Chief Dean decided to not have an executive officer, and I essentially filled that role. And um, that was a little controversial, I think, for some. Um, because I was a civilian. Uh, but I, I do think there are departments around the country that have chiefs of staff. And I know this because I was at a uh, conference in Austin. I was at the annual WAVE conference and the Tulsa fire chief saw my um, name tag and he came up to me and he said, oh, you're a chief of staff? And I said, yeah. And then I said, oh, do you know what that means? And he's, <laughs> he said, yeah, I'm, a, I'm actually a big believer in the value that they have. Um, and so we ended up writing an article together um, uh, for Firehouse Magazine about the role of a chief of staff and the benefits that it can have for the fire service. Um, and I think that my experience really bore that out. And uh, I, I enjoy talking about it. Would this be somewhat comparable to, say, FDNY's commissioner, how that is a civilian role and not a sometimes they are from the fire department originally, but they are a civilian in the role? Is that a analogy? Well, not really, because the commissioner supervises the fire chief. Um, so okay, he okay. was my, he was my supervisor. Although um, a lot of some of my friends in the department did have that as a nickname for me to call me the commissioner. <laughs> okay. And uh, before we get any further, there's there's a Waypo or a Washington Post article that we're going to be referencing a lot uh, that we'll we'll link in the that Josh will link in the. Uh, episode description or a social media post I'll put in the description. Um, a lot of my questions for today that we shared with you are from that WAPO article. Can you describe as someone who was not really familiar with the fire service, although you were familiar with public safety, how did you transition into the role? What strategies did you use to like, uh, you know, deal with the complexity and, and new concepts? Uh, well, first, let me tell you a little more detail about my background, because it helps answer that question, because um, I, I do have a long history with the department. Um, when I worked for the city council, my boss at the time, Ward 6 Councilmember Sharon Ambrose, had a very positive relationship with Local 36, the Firefighters Union. And that was the late 90s. It was a time when the district was still recovering from its financial crisis. And one of the first things I ever worked on was restoring cuts that had been made to the fire department's budget. So they had, um, to avoid bankruptcy, they had taken really deep cuts, and that, and that meant eliminating things like the battalion chief aides and reducing staffing on fire apparatus. So I worked with the union to restore that funding and also on um, policies like uh, in in enhancing the benefits of the survivors of firefighters who died in the line of duty following uh, Sergeant John Carter's death in 1997. So that was my first exposure to the department. Um, and then later, when I was working in the city administrator's office during the Fenty administration, Mayor Fenty um, had one of the first things he did was to settle the litigation with the Rosenbaum family over the handling of uh, David Rosenbaum's EMS call in 2000, um, I think it was 2005, um, but the settlement was in 2007. And so the settlement created the task force on EMS, which was um, tasked with reforming EMS in the district. And I was assigned to manage that project. So I, uh, 
I helped run the task force. We hired a consultant, did research, um, helped negotiate the recommendations and write the final report. And then I spent my four years in the Fenty administration working with uh, Chief Dennis Rubin and his team to implement those recommendations. So I had had a lot of experience in EMS um, working with the department, but as an outsider um, and had become very uh, passionate about EMS reform in the district um, and also became alarmed at kind of the turn that was taken um, after Fenty uh, lost re-election and, and the department kind of went in another direction with EMS. And so that's part of why I felt it was a real opportunity when Mayor Bowser was elected, because she was really committed to getting EMS back on track. And a sign of that was bringing in Gregory Dean from Seattle, um, obviously a high-performing EMS jurisdiction. So I was familiar with the department at kind of a high level. Um, I understood the politics and the labor um, politics within the agency. But coming in, what I didn't have was really the technical knowledge, um, the deeper, more specific technical knowledge behind fire and EMS. And, um, and so that is what I had to learn. Um, so the, the strategies that I used are ones that I learned during my career. So um, the first is to, to listen. <laughs> um, Chief Dean had a style where he he really would spend a couple of months first listening and learning the organization before making any big decisions. Um, and so I participated in that process with him and I sat in on every meeting that he sat in. Um, I'm kind of a sponge in terms of absorbing information. Um, uh, when I was a council staffer, my boss, Kathy Patterson used to say, you know, if we were looking at a certain issue, she'd say, let's become experts on this issue. So um, read everything we can, talk to everyone we can at every level of the organization, um, do research on what other jurisdictions do. Uh, so that's typically my approach. Um, and I think talking to people out in the field is a big part of that. Um, so I, I tried as chief of staff to um, to kind of disregard rank, um, which was also sometimes bother people, but um, I, I didn't feel like people had to go through their chain of command to get to me. I liked to spend time talking to people on the front lines and the middle mid-level managers. Um, and that's one of the benefits, I think, of having a civilian chief of staff is you've got a little more flexibility to do that. Um, and then uh, collecting data was is a big part of my um, style. And that was mentioned in the article. Um, when I started, I wanted to know, you know, what data we collected, what we reported. Um, what we didn't report, what we didn't know how to collect and, and how to expand on that to sort of understand where the agency was and, and where we wanted it to go. So those let's, are some of the strategies that, that I used. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. Let's talk about the data for a second. And I know we're kind of jumping around the document here, but, uh, and I, I typed in here, uh, data is only as good as the sensors that are capturing it and the methods that we're, you're utilizing to analyze it. So what lessons did you learn from that as you were moving forward? Um, can you explain more? I, I mean, I guess, so sure. a, a couple of things. Well, the yeah. first thing is, I think you're talking about accuracy, right? Um, yeah. To make sure that the, the data that you're using is accurate. And I had the benefit of having a really strong uh, chief um, of data analysis, Andrew Beaton, who's a statistician and um, 
very careful and had an approach where everything we did or said or reported needed to be audit proof. Um, and that's not just because of data integrity, but you know, when you work in a very highly politicized atmosphere like the District of Columbia, if you're going to say something, you need to be prepared for people to poke at it and um, to question it, and you need to be able to defend it. So we certainly were very careful about that. Um, but I think the other thing that I learned, actually, and, and this was sort of reinforced by my eight years as chief of staff, is data doesn't tell you everything, of course, right? You need to work on those. You need to rely on quality qualitative factors like employee surveys, um, talking to employees about their experiences, because, um, you know, data doesn't tell the whole story. So it's it's sort of one of the tools, but for me, it's, it's a very valuable tool because I felt like it was a level setter. And I felt like part of the, the department's challenges in the past had been being evaluated based on sentinel events like the Rosenbaum case. And I wanted to use data to say, well, here's the whole story of what we do every day, five to 600 calls a day. Um, this is how we measure whether we're doing a good job. This, these are the things where we think we really do need to improve. And here's where we're, we're pretty strong, right? And so when you start talking to the community and to policymakers um, in that way, then I think you're building trust and they have a better understanding. And so when something goes wrong and something will always go wrong and, and continues to go wrong, no matter how much progress you make, um, I think there's a little more forgiveness if people have that full context. I think a key thing you just mentioned was building the trust of that community. And the I'll, I'll I guess I'll explain a little bit further where that question came from. Uh, in my graduate work in epidemiology, one of the biggest concerns that I'm coming up with is um, health equity. Uh, and a lot of times the, the data that I'm seeing is not captured in an equitable way. And we're not getting everyone's, uh, you know, we're not capturing everyone's voice. Uh, I'm a first generation American. My, I grew up with an aunt and a grandmother that didn't speak English. Uh, and that certainly impacted their, their healthcare outcomes. Uh, my, my dad did not go to school at all. Right. So that certainly affected his healthcare outcomes. Uh, so uh, that, that's where, I guess, where I was reading for that. But I, I think what you're describing this, uh, this collaborative approach and trying to meet from what you're describing, trying to meet your community where they are, whether it be employees of the department or your the constituents you're serving. Uh, I, I think that sounds obvious, but I think when the rubber hits the road, I don't think that's always executed that way. You know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Josh, Cody, anything? Um, I, I like how you talked about the uh, qualitative data that is being gathered. So when we think about data, we think about numbers, we think about evidence, we think about research studies. And uh, there's this huge, huge push in medicine now, especially in EMS, of evidence-based medicine. We, uh, EBM is all over the place. There's whole pages dedicated. It's, it's what we predicate a lot of our practice on now. And there are some people who forget about the qualitative or the anecdotal data and experiences that come into play with these things. Um, and I, I like that you highlighted that it is a, a crucial part because we can't just look at numbers because numbers don't paint the full picture. You know, uh, we can see, uh, we'll just say uh, XYZ department has uh, response times that are meeting national standard. Okay, cool. 
off numbers, we're doing great, but how are we doing as a department at a personnel level, as a field level? Are we actually delivering the correct care? Are we just meeting time hacks? Are we just simply pushing buttons at the right time to meet a time? Yeah, you know, right. Like and that. are we measuring the right thing? Sorry yep. to cut you off. No, no, it's, um, it's fine. It, yeah, you know, it's we have to take everything into consideration and find out what the true data is, the true um, outcomes from our research and from what we're right. gathering, and how to positively affect even positive things are going on and the negative things too. Exactly, and and so. You hit on two important things. First, um, our philosophy was to publish the good and the bad um, because that that's part of how you build trust is and you you're, you build your credibility by admitting when you make a mistake or admitting we're we're not performing well in some area. Um, and that's true outside of the agency in terms of media and policymakers, but it's true with your workforce too because they know they can call BS and 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 they know it when they see it. Um, but another early decision we made was to expand what we were measuring. So when I started, if you looked at the department's website, um, there was not really uh, in-depth performance reporting. In fact, the only the the topic of the the tab at the time was response times, um, and so that was kind of the beginning, middle, and end. And we decided we wanted to not only measure patient care and patient outcomes, but report on them. And so that's part of the storytelling uh, exercise and philosophy that I mentioned earlier. Um, so we did. So we uh, uh, first uh, just started measuring our compliance with our own EMS protocols um, for a couple of years and reporting that. And those were very positive. Um, but then we made the decision that, well, we'd love to find some national standard for EMS patient care reporting because you know, that's been a, a long process and um, hasn't been as strong as, say, NFPA. Um, so we decided to use the NEMSQA measures that were published a couple of years ago. Uh, and that allowed us to to not only report on how we did when we knew the patient was having a stroke, but maybe um, how we did when we didn't necessarily know that and maybe we missed that that was a stroke. Um, uh, and that was that was important, too. Right. And I, I think. Um, we were we were very excited about that, um, but I unfortunately didn't get to where I wanted to be after eight years, which was um, getting more complete patient outcome data from the hospital. So that's still a work in progress in DC. Yes, it is. And I kept saying, I'm not leaving until we do this. And then, uh, <laughs> so now as part of the foundation, I, I hope to continue to push on that actually. And maybe even provide them with some foundation support on how to um, collect and manage and, and publish the data. So I have a, a question that kind of goes along with this, the, the evidence and the data. You know, we, we take all that into account and we spend man hours, oh gosh, hundreds, thousands of man hours a year putting together data, putting together what we call evidence-based medicine. And there are a couple of different groups that you know, EMS folks have to, or fire folks have to communicate that to. And when we're, what, what advice do you have for the chiefs or for the, for the senior level staff officers who have to present those cases? How do we tell our story better? Well, first you need, the chief needs to invest internal resources into data analysis. Um, fire departments have very, very thin um, administrative staffs. Mm -hmm. And I had had 
experience working with the Metropolitan Police Department in D.C. And um, Charles Ramsey became chief in the late 90s. And he came in um, in the middle of controversy and was sort of an outside chief who was tasked with reform. One of the things he did was he significantly expanded the civilian team at MPD. And there was that focus on data analysis and also media relations. Um, and so I, I had seen how effective that was in the MPD context. And uh, Chief Dean was on the same page that we needed to, to kind of increase that level of um, uh, resources within the agency. So that would be my first piece of advice. And then the second would be uh, understanding your community and policymakers enough to know what's important and what they want to know um, when you're doing your reporting with data. Um, and with the policymakers, if you tell the story the right way, then hopefully that translates into getting more resources, which we were able to do in DC. How do you, or what's a, what's a tip, communication tip or trick that you may have when, uh, when a department senior staff individual has to talk about the gap in between, okay, this is where my numbers were, and this is the standard we're measuring ourselves against. How can we explain that gap better? I think you explain how you're working to to close the gap because <laughs> they want to they want to know well what are you going to do about this, um, and so I I think that's how you respond, and and also um, you know you need to know why you're not meeting the standard. You may not know, right? Um, some of that is we don't know and it's it's guessing, but um, I think you have plenty to talk about because you understand much better than outsiders what you're doing to to try to improve. And people like to hear that. It's kind of like uh, when you when you talk about a problem or an issue within a department or where, wherever it is, you know, even a, even an after-action review of a uh, something that you're deficient on, it's always better to provide the a possible solution to that issue um, and to show that it's not just like, oh, well, here's this issue. I don't know what we're going to do about it, but it's there. Then that leaves anyone else around you thinking, well, are they properly equipped to do the job regardless? You know, they're, they're not providing the solution. So if you have a, a solution that's sound and at least based in something that can be worked and not just, you know, you know, reaching for the stars, hypothetical, well, if you just gave me a million dollars, I could solve it all. No, like, hey, how are we going to you know, allocate resources to fix this problem that we have right now, that by doing it and working on it, someone might be like, hey, let's push some money towards it to make it work better. So I, I strongly advise anyone that is bringing issues up in their department, come with solutions or possible solutions instead of, these are my problems. I'm just laying them in front of you. I don't know what to do about them, but I got a problem with it. Come with solutions because at least it looks like that you're invested. Josh, I got to say that when you're talking, it sounds like there's like you're in an airplane or something. I don't know. It might be a different microphone choice or something. I don't know. I just want to let you know. Um, I'm so happy that we got to this topic because one of the quotes in the WAPO article uh, has you saying, uh, quote, our department has demonstrated that if you make political and financial investment in it, you save more lives, end quote. I, uh, so this is one of the things I like, love talking about, but I've yet to get a lot of good answers. Um, in the world uh, where we certainly need reimbursement reform for EMS, 
in a world where uh, just my anecdotal experience in local government, there's always these political walls where they're like, we, we need this budget. Oh, well, you know, we don't have it. I guess you're stuck. How did you surpass those walls? Cause I imagine you, you know, that was a very complex situation you walked into. Um, and I guess I'm looking for like those tangible budgetary and uh, what, what's the other word I had like political uh, budgetary and political walls you had to, and how did you overcome those walls? Uh, well, the first thing you have to do is know how to leverage a crisis. Um, and I had experience doing that with the Rosenbaum case. Um, in 2015, I will never forget, um, in March, in one week, we had like three, uh, I think it was, yeah, it was three negative news stories where patients were harmed because of lack of resources. This wasn't a resource issue, it was a process issue, but in one of them, a, um, a toddler died after choking on a grape and the closest unit wasn't sent to the incident. Um, so we had the uh, attention of the mayor and the council because of that. Um, but that's not, you know, that's not the whole story, right? You need to, to figure out a, a responsible strategy for getting the resources you need. Um, so it helped that Chief Dean came from the outside. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that when I talk about our, our internal strategies. But um, so the, the policymakers were looking to him for solutions, and he had this specific experience with a third-party provider transporting BLS patients in Seattle. Um, and so when we went to the policymakers to ask for what was going to be a very significant financial investment um, to hire a third-party provider who turned out to be AMR, um, I brought in charts to show them the number of minutes a day we had run out of ambulances. Um, and so we said, here's on Wednesday for an hour, we had no ambulances available. Um, and you could actually use those charts and overlap them with some of the negative news stories. Um, and so it was, it, it, it was literally true that, um, investing more money would save more lives and you just had to portray it that way. Um, and, uh, you also had to be credible in what, what we said we were going to deliver. So, we said we wanted to do this and it was hard for the policymakers at first to understand how private, you know, what they saw as privatization of a government function, which it wasn't because we were actually just supplementing our government resources. Um, they, it was hard for them to imagine how that would fix someone who doesn't know or somebody who mishandled an, an EMS call because they didn't follow the protocol. Right. Um, so what we said to them was, if you give us this investment, it will give us the space and time to improve training our apparatus and our patient care. Um, and then a year later, we came back to those same policymakers and we said, thanks to this investment, I can show you now how we improved our training, our apparatus and our patient care. Um, and it was incremental and, and some things took longer than others. Um, I can tell you the media stories went away pretty quickly because we were terribly under-resourced before we hired AMR. Um, and so that made an immediate difference. And that's part of the, the process of building trust and building credibility um, and telling the story over time and returning and sharing the data, because that allowed us 
um, to do even more in the future and, and eventually to start innovating and, and doing things that we couldn't imagine in 2015 we could do, like building the nurse triage line. Good. Did you have some? Yeah. Uh, I love that. I love that quote. I'm, I'm going to have to make a social media thing out of it and give it to, give it to Josh to post it, but know how to leverage a crisis. Um, I read a book last year by, by Pete Blaver who talked about how organizations, you know, they, they, when they're in crisis mode, all these barriers to money and communication and the silos and, the, and all these things just, they evaporated because, you know, they, it's, it made sense to do that, right, in that crisis situation. How difficult is it, do you think, for large organizations like DC Fire or other big city organizations to, once the crisis is over, not revert back to the old ways uh, of handling business you know, the crisis situation or the crisis um, solution worked and worked amazingly how you keep from going back to pre-crisis operating that that's a really astute question because the reality is in a political atmosphere once the crisis is over people move on um but you still have needs right um because change doesn't happen overnight so uh you know i remember the homicide rate and crime became an issue about a year into our tenure. And so the attention immediately shifted to that. Um, so I think what you do is, um, you know, you just keep coming back. I, uh, in 2018, three years in to my tenure, we had our first kind of significant bump in cardiac arrest survival rates. So I was like a kid at Christmas when, when those numbers came in and I, I would share them with anyone who would listen. Um, and that was new, right? Cause again, they, they were only used to talking about response times, but I was like, mayor, council, community, look what, look what they, we've done. You did this. Do, do you understand that by giving us resources, more people lived? Um, so you just have to keep beating that drum. Right. And then, um, during COVID our numbers fell, um, and uh, and we shared that with them. We said, look, this is the impact of the pandemic. You know, we're, we still have resources. Our response times are still good. We, we don't feel like our patient care has changed much, but this is a societal kind of impact on these numbers. And now in 2023, um, I shared with you the email that the foundation sent out last week. Um, we're, we're getting back to kind of our pre-pandemic um, stride, which is really exciting. Um, so I also joked that it's probably the only Giving Tuesday appeal um, that's ever had the word Utstein in it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll never stop. I'll never stop talking about those numbers um, until it becomes I, like they're tired of hearing about it. Not that I, I definitely don't work at the same level as you, Amy. I'm very much at the field level, but we had a similar thing happen within our department uh, during COVID where uh, they determined a need that they needed someone sitting uh, at dispatch uh, sending units to hospitals for determining where ho what hospital a unit could go to. Uh, there's, a, there's many departments that have implemented this kind of uh, system or an, an, uh, someone doing this job. Um, and we trialed it. And then we looked at the numbers of what happened and how it decreased some of our wait times, uh, loss of productivity, loss of money by units sitting at, you know, holding a wall. Um, and then they have continued to report those numbers and show that they are trending down 
And as a member, you know, working in the field, there's a lot of people that say, oh, why do we still have this? This is such a hassle. We didn't have this for years and we were able to transport just fine. It's like, well, look at the numbers. Like you can see a significant, you know, not just, you know, a couple thousand dollars of time lost or hours lost or whatever it is. It is significant, you know, five digit, you know, $10,000, $20,000 better, you know, and they'll keep on reporting it. So I, I can completely understand because, like, they're just verifying that this thing is needed. Just for as in DC, you guys keep on verifying that a private service is needed to handle the overload of BLS calls that would tie up the crucial ALS resources. We've mentioned the Fire and EMS Foundation a little bit. Uh, do you mind just going into that, like what what that is? Uh, I, I know you, you've led a sort of resurgence, a resurgence of it, right? So, if you, do you mind just going into that real quick? Sure. So the foundation actually was originally incorporated in 2007 uh, during Dennis Rubin's tenure as fire chief in D.C. Uh, it had a couple of successful years of fundraising and support, and then it essentially became inactive um, during the kind of t- turbulence between that period and 2015 or um, the, the pandemic. Um, so before I left the department, I had talked to Chief Donnelly about um, the need for an independent organization supporting the department. Again, um, citing the Charles Ramsey MPD precedent, um, the DC Police Foundation was created in the early 2000s. And that was uh, the DC business community wanting to support the department and the progress they were making and wanting to um, support that progress independent of politics or the local economy. And so um, that was a comparable foundation uh, that I know. And so um, uh, I thought that a foundation could um, advocate for the department uh, and prepare for uh, tougher economic times with both advocacy and financial support, um, but also really educate the community about the department. Because when I was chief of staff, um, I think one of the disadvantages we have is that the fire department doesn't have natural advocates like um, the police or the schools or other agencies or constituencies have. Um, But I think we need that support. Um, And so part of it is educating the community about how we do EMS, why the fire truck shows up, um, why we think it works that way. you know, and, and it's also nice for the community to have a resource to support the agency when it does well. So I, I can tell you that since I've started this, I've I've had a couple of events and I frequently have someone come who says, um, you know, when my husband was dying, um, I called the department a couple of times to help lift him off the floor or, or whatever it was, you know, not significantly challenging calls, but you were there for us. And I always wanted to, you know, pay that back. Um, and so that's really meaningful, I think, uh, for people to have a place to, to offer their support of what we do. So, um, so that's my goal is to become as, uh, uh, successful and stable as the DC police foundation. There are other foundations out there, obviously FDNY is the largest and most successful. I would love, um, their budget and resources, but, you know, take it one day at a time. (laughs) I was going to say Rome wasn't built in a day, right? Uh, this document uh, that you have uh, that we'll also share that kind of talks about the DC Fire and EMS Foundation has a quote from Kevin Hazard that I like that you included. 
Uh, first responders represent an ideal, an assurance by society backed by money that human lives are sacred and will be saved anywhere and everywhere they're in danger. Society has often shrugged its burden and reneged on the deal, but it's always been there. Uh, and this is a really cool way uh, for you, well, for the foundation and with your leadership to support the continued mission of the of the fire and EMS, EMS department. Excuse me. How does this fit in with the everyday budget and I, and I know you kind of talked about it a little bit but the document really goes into detail and i was hoping you elaborate more on what's the tangible benefit obviously there's you know money being generated and i imagine there's educational benefits benefits and so on and so forth but what are some of what's your vision on how this can directly impact uh the citizens that live in the district but also the folks that are serving them um, thank you for reading that quote. I loved it. I'll, I'll never forget when I read it in the book and I was like, yes, this, this right here. <laughs> and that was before I left the department. Um, and then I was lucky enough to meet Kevin uh, because he came up to D.C. Um, uh, for a book club that we did um, on his book. And so he knows that I'm using that quote on the website and, and anywhere I can. Um so examples of tangible benefit. Well, I have one that actually we are fortunate enough to have just started, which was we received a grant from the Capitals, uh, the Washington Capitals hockey team to support firefighter mental health. Um, and so I I met with um, the chief's office and his um, kind of mental health peer support team, police and fire clinic and said, how do I use the foundation to fill gaps that exist um, when, you know, with this issue within the government. Because what, what I wanted to do with the foundation was have a private resource that can do things that the government can't do. Um, and so what we did was we created an emergency fund um, for firefighters who are in treatment for behavioral health, cancer, or cardiac issues, which of course we we all know they have increased risk of um, getting those diagnoses. Um, and it helps cover uh, gaps in their healthcare benefits, um, you know, uh, other logistical problems, transportation, um, lodging, uh, childcare, things like that that come up as a result of the treatment. Um, and so I will be able as a 501c3 to directly help those firefighters and those families in a way that the government or, you know, the police and fire clinic can't. Um, so that's an example. Uh, other examples um, in the short term when we're, as we're building our budget, I'd love to support uh, professional development. I, I focused a lot on leadership development when I was with the department and we made great strides, but um, the tuition assistance budget is never big enough, right? I mean, the, the training academy's budget is about 1% of the whole budget of the department and they do an amazing job. Um, but it, we always need more, um, to get everybody that the training and certifications that they need. So I think that the foundation can help with that as well. Saw that number. I was scrolling through the website and I saw it 1% set aside for training and development of the staff. It was a little, was a little jarring, a little <laughs> eye opening. I was like, is it? <laughs> I feel like, I feel like they should, I feel like they need more, but I'm biased. Yeah. yeah, I think I think in my department, it's I think we just got it renegotiated in the CBA. It's only about, I think sixty or sixty-five thousand for the entire department, and it, it 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 goes quick. 
Mm-hmm. I tried to get tuition assistance two years ago, and I was on a call, and I sent my application in 35 minutes after it opened, and I was waitlisted already. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was very fast. Um, but, yeah. I was on mute. Sorry. All right. I I, I got to get into some controversy here. I, uh, so, and you know that I was going to bring this up. So, and I know that you cleared it. So I, I, I had no background on the DC fire EMS department at all. I, I started in EMS in 2014, uh, until, uh, 2016, uh, when, uh, one of your medical directors, uh, Dr. Juliette Saucy, I might mess up the name, uh, wrote a very public and scathing resignation letter. Uh, that would have been right around your time. Correct. Uh, if you don't mind just describing that whole shebang, uh, and how y'all dealt with it, uh, I'd really appreciate it. How could I forget? Of course. Uh, so I started in, um, well, in early 2015 with the mayor's office and then joined the department June 1st. Um, and, uh, we were excited to recruit, um, and hire, uh, Dr. Saucy um, a very accomplished medical director and doctor, um, and kind of, um, maybe I just brushed aside, um, uh, some voices in my head saying, can a, will a third service, um, EMS person be happy in the, the DC fire department? Um, so I, I won't spend too much time on the next seven months or so, but, um, eventually she resigned uh, and released that scathing letter. Um, and it was just, it was devastating. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I, I wasn't terribly surprised, um, because the, the signs were building that, that it it really wasn't going to work out. Um, but the, you know, the, the timing was devastating as well, because we were, um, we had gotten approval for the AMR contract. We had gotten the funding for it. Um, but we were like six weeks from launch, right? So we're about to do this um, incredibly uh, change, you know, uh, I wouldn't say controversial, but um, definitely a big change in the way the city delivered EMS. Everybody was anxious about it. Our workforce was anxious about it. Um, you know, the community actually wasn't uh, as stressed out as as we expected them to be because I think we made a strong case for why we were doing it. Um, but uh, um, it was hard personally. And, and also because, um, we knew the fire that the department needed to improve the way it did EMS. <laughs> that's why I took the job. Right. I mean, that's why we were doing what we were doing. Um, so, uh, but we needed to work as a team, uh, to get there. And so, uh, I'll never forget, um, a conversation I had with chief Dean when that was going on, because he was so, um, he was very calm, uh, had a ton of experience, you know, uh, 40 years in the fire service, very wise, um, solid leader. And I said, how, you know, how can you not let this bother you? And he said, well, um, we just need to prove her wrong. Um, and he was right. Um, and so, it actually brought our team together because um, the team was not where it needed to be at that point. Um, and so we just kind of um, uh, linked arms and focused on the launch 
Um, and you know, that was, uh, our approach from then on. And so we just methodically worked on improving, um, the department and our performance and our patient care. And I, I think we did. Um, so I, I actually, um, have no regrets about the way it happened because I, I, it was just sort of, it happened and, and we recovered and I think we did very well. In keeping with your, with your theme of never, never letting a crisis go to waste, what was, what was one of the biggest, the biggest things that you were able to leverage from that crisis to enhance the, the future of the department? I don't think we leveraged that one. <laughs> We just tried to. Fair, fair, fair. I mean, answer. we just tried to prove it wrong, right? That it that it couldn't be done was basically the the sort of message that was sent was that we didn't care about EMS and we didn't and our department was not capable of doing it well. Um, so our that was our our mission was to prove to the community that we could do it well. I imagine that no one signs up for a job like that wanting to publish a letter like that right um if you were talking to any number of other medical directors that find themselves whether right or wrong frustrated to the point of that what what advice do you give them yeah to be fair um you know we had cultural challenges and resistance to ems within the agency of course um and so we have ems champions within the agency who do get frustrated um and I hate to sound like a broken record, but I, I, I talk about the data. I say, um, we're making incremental improvements. Um, and so we're on the right path and, um, and it, it just, it takes fortitude and it, it takes, um, you know, leadership over generations. Um, and it's an evolution. And I, I see that evolution in our department. I see um, we were, one of the things I'm proud of is, um, you know, retaining paramedics is always a challenge for any organization. It's a burnout job. And we had had kind of a, an exodus in the years, 2013, 2014. Um, and, uh, attrition is significantly slowed down. And I think that's one of the benefits of the way our agency is structured is that paramedics can get promoted and they can go up through the ranks. Um, and they're doing that. And when I started, um, you know, we had just a small number of uh, company officers and chief officers who are paramedics. And now those numbers are much larger. And so they have, um, they're becoming leaders and they're influencing the agency in a positive way. Right. So it's, I think since I've been around for so long and I can talk about what it was like in 2005 <laughs> and what it's like today. Um, I think that perspective helps people who are frustrated in the moment. And if you could, if you could have a conversation with, with another medical director who is maybe in the same, uh, maybe in the same seat, feeling marginalized, feeling like nobody's listening to me. I can't get anything done. They just want me for my signature. What, what would you tell them? What, what piece of advice would you give them to say, Hey, listen, it doesn't have to be this way. And here's what you can do or what you need to do to, to be heard. Um, I would say you'd, you'd need to have a seat at the table um, in all conversations. The medical director needs that authority. Um, and in the district, actually, that had been done legislatively um, by establishing that the medical directors, um, 
the civilian equivalent of an assistant fire chief. So our medical director um, participated in everything. He, he wasn't he wasn't kind of in his office reviewing charts, right? Like, and same same thing applies to my position. And that was intentional. I when I was trying to decide whether to take the job, I told Chief Dean that I didn't want to just be, you know, supervising the civilians. I, I wanted to be at the table during the operational conversations um, because you need a diverse group at that mm -hmm. table to be making the best decisions. So that would probably be my my main bit of advice. Um, Amy, not I don't know if this is controversial, but you know you've talked about coming in and trying to fix uh, the EMS aspects of the department when you came in. What was it like, you know, as the um, chief of staff coming in with Chief Reed coming into the department after Chief Ellerby and having to work on the overall morale and feelings of the department where, you know, he, uh, whether factual or not, uh, very much uh, did a lot to negatively influence the morale department from what the outsiders saw. What, what did you guys have to do to bring the morale up overall, not just work on the EMS portion? Um, well, one of the reasons why the mayor selected Chief Dean was because he had a really strong labor relations record. Um, he was very well liked in Seattle, um, sort of universally. And uh, one anecdote was that the union had um, hosted his retirement party. <laughs> that was kind of all we needed to hear. We were like, okay, good, that's a good sign. That's a weird. Um, so he's a he's an expert at that, um, at uh, building trust with employees. Um, and so, like I said, so it's not always great when an outsider chief comes in, right? There's um, pros and cons to that. And I, I personally think that should only be done when an agency is in crisis um, because a strong department, you know, grooms their own leaders internally. And if things are going well, then then you should have those internal candidates. Um, but that's not where we were in 2015. So I think the timing was right for an outsider. Um, and then both he and I being outsiders helped because we didn't have um, internal baggage, right? You know, the organizations have, and, and especially in fire departments, you know, they have different communities, right? And there's competition between those communities. And um, we, we didn't have any allegiances. Um, and so we talked to everybody and we listened to everyone and tried to kind of stay above that fray. Um, and Chief Dean was a master at like putting rivals together as well. Um, he, he could, he didn't make many personnel changes when he came in because he, as a leader was able to bring people together and make the team work. Um, and so I, I think that that was part of, uh, why he was successful. Okay. That's huge. What you just said, uh, he didn't remove too many folks from their positions. That's huge. Cause a lot of times, I don't know. I, I I can't give you a specific example, but I feel like a lot of times new leaders come in and they want to clear house and they feel that they need to clear house. But that's just something that you said that really clicked with me. A, a marker of a good leader is someone who's able to, f you know, facilitate and collaborate with folks that they're not used to working with 
and being that agent of change in a way that doesn't seem like antagonistic. That's huge. That, that, that's really interesting to hear. I got to ask this question, a woman in the fire service, what did you experience misogyny? If you did like how, uh, you know, and what strategies did you use to, you know, deal with that? Yeah, I'll be completely honest. I did not experience the level that I expected. And and that was one of the reasons it was really hard for me to make the decision to take the job because I knew that, that that was a potential challenge. Um, uh, You know, I, of course, there are exceptions, um, but I think it's a couple of things. The first thing is what I mentioned, which is um, Chief Dean immediately sent a signal to the department about my level of authority when he issued an order saying that I was the civilian equivalent of it, an assistant fire chief. Um, so that was sort of communicating something in their language. Um, and and he had my back and he always had my back and people saw that. Um, and so that gave me a great advantage um, that they knew that uh, that when I showed up or when I spoke, I was representing the fire chief. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that there's not, um, you know, challenges for women in our organization. And I also knew that. And that was hard because I wanted to support those women. Um, but I couldn't be in the firehouse to, do, you know, uh, when things went south for them. Um, and so. Uh, one of our priorities was attracting and uh, recruiting and promoting more women. And we focused on that and we created um, a program called Empowering Women to Lead um, as a way to support women who wanted to um, move up in the agency and just as a kind of networking mentoring um, program. And our first class for that was basically all of the most senior women in the agency. Um, and making bonds with those female leaders, um, was really valuable and rewarding for me. And then they turned around and said, well, we want to create a women's advisory council, um, to, to continue this work and to support women. And, and that was the most important thing because, you know, they, they have a rotating chair with a phone number and, and they consider themselves a resource, not just for women, but for company officers who need advice about, um, managing their their female employees, and so that was the way we got that support out into the field in a way that I couldn't do it. Um, so, uh, so I I think I've shared with Mustafa that um, I actually think that uh, being a I got more blowback for being a civilian than for being a woman. Um, although there is in the Washington Post article, there's the the fire chief wears heels. Um, and I met with a bunch of women in the department over the summer, and I, um, I put up the slide with that quote, and I said, "What do you guys make of this?" Um, and some of them didn't know what to say, and uh, one of them said, "Well, I think it, I thought it was a microaggression," and <laughs> um, I had a sense of humor about it because I used to hear that all the time, um, and uh, it it didn't bother me. But my husband shared the same view. He was like, "You realize that that's kind of a sexist way of." describing you don't you and i said you know it is what it is firefighters need to they need to come up with these um funny jokes and nicknames and i was okay with it there's something obvious they can make fun of you for they will make something up yeah uh well they didn't they didn't know what to make of me right like hmm. um i was at the table i had authority i was making decisions so 
we got this kind of like, oh, she thinks she's the fire chief. Um, well, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm the chief of staff. So I, I was just fulfilling my role there. Um, what, did you so. find it like really hard to relate and communicate to them or was it just a little pocket here and there, little singles that? I was the latter. Um, I, 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 sh I should have said first, we have a really progressive fire department. I'm really proud of them. Um, our department is uh, racially diverse. Um, we have a strong history of African-American leadership. Um, we have more women than most departments. I think we're at, last time I checked, it was like 14%. You know, most departments have like single digits. Um, so that makes a difference too, is that is we have a, a, a fairly positive history and a progressive um, city where we operate, right? So um, I feel very lucky about that. Is, is DC Fire just doing something different with their recruiting? Or is it the story that oh, this is this is a place for you? I think so. I think the work we did with the women in the department made it sent a signal to the community that that we welcome women. Um, I can't prove that, but our numbers did go up over the eight years that I was there. That's your proof there, right? Uh, um. So, uh, let's pivot here a little bit. Um. So I really do want to get into like the nurse triage line and the AMR contract, like the, the, you know, your process for, I guess, both, uh, you know, before, during, after just how, to, you know, how you came up, how you guys came up with it, how, you know, just different things you noticed while you were operationalizing it. And then, you know, after, if you can comment on that. Yeah. So, um, after Dr. Saucy left in 2016, um, I'm smiling because the story is really so funny. Uh, we needed a medical director. We had like a couple of days, right, to find someone whose license um, our workforce could operate under. Uh, and we're scrambling, trying different ideas. And suddenly the mayor's office introduces Dr. Robert Holman. He's going to be your medical director. And we were like, who the, like, who? And he, he jokes that, um, he ended up in the job because he, he read the wall street journal instead of the Washington post. <laughs> <So> <laughs> he, he comes in and, and, uh, he meets chief Dean and I one evening and, you know, everybody's very polite. And I, I, I told him it felt like we were like sipping lemonade on the front porch while like the house is on fire behind us. <laughs> um, uh, and so he, ends up being the absolute perfect choice um, because he's an internist and he was working in community medicine. Um, and so he was working at a community clinic uh, and his patients would talk about things that they called 911 for um, non-emergency, you know, primary care issues. And so of course he quickly sees as medical director, um, our very, very high number of non-emergency EMS calls. Um, and the fact that uh, we we took them to the hospital no matter what, um, there was no flexibility there. And so he um, created a, a interagency group called the Integrated Healthcare Collaborative to address this problem. Um, and so he invited our health and human service agencies, our Medicaid MCOs in the city, um, some, uh, 
nonprofit community um, advocates in the in that issue area, and they came up with a strategy. And so they came up with a report and a number of recommendations. And the primary recommendation was to create a nurse triage line. So that report came out in, um, I think, 2017. Um, and at that point, as I mentioned, we had made some progress and were in a positive place in terms of sharing um, data and information with the policy makers. Um, and so Mayor Bowser, I'll give her credit once again, um, said, you know, she she read the report and she supported the recommendation and she put it in the budget. Um, and, you know, it was it was similar to AMR in that it was, um, you know, we were anxious about how the community would receive it. Um, our employees were certainly um, anxious about actually the prospect of leaving a patient on a scene without transport and, and everything that all the risk that that entailed. Um, uh, but uh, we were able to do it and that, you know, there were a couple of things that were key in making it successful um, and primarily transportation. Um, so we knew, you know, the main reason why um, low income patients uh, rely so much on emergency departments is, or on EMS is the ambulance ride. So we, um, uh, the MCOs had a contract for non-emergency transportation, but you had to schedule it and it took like 24 hours, right? And so why would you do that when you can just get an ambulance at your door in a couple of minutes? So we changed the contracts so that um, we have lift vehicles that will show up at the patient's home within 10 minutes. Um, and so that was very important. And the district's also lucky that we have a network of community clinics who also partnered with us um, to receive those patients. And um, so we're very proud of it. It's, uh, we were certainly the first major city to incorporate a nurse triage line in the 911 center instead of it being an alternative phone number, which is how some jurisdictions have done it. Um, and I think we've diverted, you know, somewhere from between 20 and 30,000 patients since 2018. Wow, that's remarkable. What's like, I mean, uh... And I guess it's okay for you, but like on an average annual basis, what percentage of calls are diverted then? Do you know? Sorry to put you on the spot. Um, I don't know annual because we were so, we were very focused on the daily percentage of, of mm. calls that guy got diverted from EMS and um, it hovers somewhere between like five and 8%. And uh, we really think it could be higher than that, but that's kind of a work in progress with um, the workforce and with the OUC. No, that, that's really interesting because what, what we, from my anecdotal knowledge, I know that uh, alternative destination transports don't work out because those places end up calling 911 anyway. Mm -hmm. And then uh, sort of when we show up as paramedics and those the people calling expect to go to the hospital, they don't expect to be told, no, you know, what, do you want to go to a clinic? So it's interesting if you... If you can triage at the, like you said, at the 911 center, then, uh, you know, we may not necessarily even get that far. So that, that's an interesting, that's certainly an interesting, really cool strategy. Um, yeah, I didn't have so any follow-up. Go ahead. So in my jurisdiction, we piloted a uh, telehealth program that was somewhat similar to the triage, but not quite. Uh, we unfortunately don't have it anymore because I don't know if it was because of use or it was uh, just the contract ran out for some reason. 
we don't have that option anymore. But uh, I do know uh, we I was present for using it a couple times, um, and unfortunately, fortunately, it, it's a two sided coin here. Uh, it was really good with our high risk refusals. Uh, so we were able to get a doctor to actually talk to the patient that wasn't through a radio that wasn't, you know, you know, we always have issues, uh, with high risk refusals via, um, our consult lines, but, uh, it was able to really have a good conversation with the patient and make an informed decision. At least, uh, the attempt was to reduce, uh, ER usage, or at least for the patient that didn't want to go to the ER, but still called 911, those weird quasi gray area calls that they could get a, uh, some kind of, um, visit logged with a physician via telehealth. Um, and like so said, you would all, do it on scene, like you yeah, would get would there use, and you would call up the doctor. Yeah. We had a, each unit has a phone and we would call that and they could do either a, uh, vocal, but if it was a vocal, they usually wouldn't do it as a, a visit with that physician, but you could do uh, via zoom, a visual face to face, uh, and so, like I said, it worked great for our high-risk refusals. I think the the hope was to keep it and use it as a uh, adjunct of the alternative destination uh, protocol that we have in Maryland. Uh, but the nurses' line sounds like an even better thing. I have my own issues with things called nurses' lines, but this is not that. Uh, and that would be with a specific healthcare agency. But, so uh, I should say, because we don't divert as many as we'd like at the OUC level, we did have a kind of phase two, which is when we, when the first responders are on scene, they can call the nurse with the patient. Um, and then, of course, Mustafa, that does, it, it involves a certain amount of negotiating, right, um, for them to even talk to the nurse. But if the nurse has talked to them and evaluated them, then the nurse's decision on transport is what prevails. Um, and And we did that. Um, for safety reasons, right? Because you want that higher level of certification to be making that that ultimate decision. Um, eh, we can debate about higher level of certification, uh, but oh, sure. Oh, sorry. Uh, I just... Yeah, uh, but uh, on that it, one. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like we, uh, Josh. It's almost like we need an advanced practice paramedic practitioner model, right? That would maybe get reimbursed, but we won't go into that whole debate right now. Whole another episode or two. Yeah. Glad you said the word reimbursement. I was curious. I mean, I may, I may have missed it during the during the setup. But how did you fund your nurse triage line? Mm -hmm. A lot of the communities, uh, paramedics or nurse lines or telehealth or whatever, they usually grant funding like eleven fifteen waivers. Most departments either don't have the financial bandwidth or most municipalities don't have the financial bandwidth. So I was curious, how did you guys fund that? Very, probably very expensive nurse triage line. Um, we got a local appropriation in 2018 of a million dollars, and it's stayed steady since then because I think we overestimated the volume in the beginning. So as the program has grown um, over time, the same budget's been able to accommodate it. But Dr. Holman has, um, it, there's, there was a Washington Post article about the five-year anniversary, and you'll see in that that um, he articulates um, a financial benefit argument about the the uh, Medicaid and operational savings uh, well exceed that local investment. Um, we also went to a we also went to a um, a Medicaid cost reimbursement model uh, in the district, 
which, um, you know, the, that process uh, recognizes those cases where you don't transport and just the cost of delivering EMS as part of your reimbursement. Um, so that's something I, I highly recommend because it resulted in a, a, a significant increase in revenue to the district. And the, the department has benefited from that. Uh, to add to, for Cody, you know, I know and you're probably familiar since you work relatively close to the epicenter of this, but I know Baltimore City had to have a lot of buy-in to from the hospitals. Mm -hmm. uh, the hospitals offered to contribute money to the system to fund it. I don't know which one specifically, how much, and how much it made up the their budget for it, but that's from what I understand. Uh, and unfortunately, the person that could comment on this best is not here today. Um, but that is what funded their community health program. Uh, it wasn't like, hey, the city budget magically appropriated this money for them for this novel concept that has yet to be totally proven. Um, so it it is it's a very difficult thing to do. You have to have that buy-in from multiple organizations or have a council, a government system that is willing to look at it and take the bite on it. Um, and I know we're, we're, my department's working slowly towards that. We finally got people that are actually full-time uh, day work. It's only two people, but full-time day work within uh, MIH that are uniform personnel. And they have a couple of people that are civilian. So it's but, interesting you, you bring up how difficult it is for hospitals to pivot to it, even though it's so, back in 2017, me and my team got tasked to build a community paramedicine program as a hospital-based service. And you would be shocked at just how difficult it was to get a big aircraft carrier hospital to start pivoting away from everything needs to get it admitted through the ED and trying to work back end into clinic visits and, and all that stuff. It was it was eight or nine, eight months. Sounds right to me. It's been a few years. It's not how long it actually took us before we could actually start enrolling patients in the program and getting it and getting it paid for. And it was only a cost savings of of about a million bucks or so. But then you look at that versus the revenue they lost from the admissions, and it was uh, it was an interesting conversation to say the least right before I left. <laughs> My like next project is like trying to understand Medicare Medicaid reimbursement because Maryland is, I believe one of the only total cost of healthcare models and we have like a Medicaid waiver. But if I was to start talking about that, I would fall asleep myself before the listeners. So uh, that's like one of my current projects because so much of EMS is affected by this, but like the average, of course the average paramedic doesn't know, but I don't, I don't even know if like the health policy people know about EMS. Like I wonder if I feel like that's a niche that just the folks, I, I, I could probably count on like, two hands how many people i think i don't know what i don't know but how many people are experts in both you know so the, EM, the ems folks are getting squeezed from that piece of it and then the air medical community uh that, that i know has a oh god oh, especially recently oh, especially yeah, recently the yeah one of the most surprises billing act has been it's been pretty widespread there have been two large air medical corporations Chapter 11 bankruptcy because the revenue was not keeping up with the expenses, um, and it's uh, it's going to change. In my opinion, if it doesn't get, um, if we don't come to the middle and come to some pretty decent agreements 
uh, on this, then it, could, it will change the air medical landscape in, in the United States and not for the better. It's a shame because, of course, we don't want people getting surprise crazy bills, right? Obviously. Yeah, yeah. But then on the other end, we kind of need a service for really sick people to get not by ground to the, where they need to go. Right. And, and, and you know, there's, there's a middle ground somewhere. And, and you know, I'm going to say this probably. But there's, there's a middle ground in the how much we should be billing for this and, and, and trying to justify the cost of uh, using an aircraft. There's there's a piece of the puzzle that's not really at the table, and it's the actual requester um, uh, for an appropriate utilization of the resource. And then there's the, the insurance reimbursement piece of it, which bases a lot of their decisions on the other two. It's an incredibly complicated and about 10 pay grades above me conversation. Yeah. Amy, I got to ask, uh, so now that you're you, – you, so you said you're not with DC Fire EMS anymore. You're with the foundation, but then you said you're volunteering for the foundation. So are there any other like professional endeavors you're doing right now? Yeah, I am consulting part-time. Um, I like to help leaders with organizational change. Um, obviously, I've got uh, public safety expertise, and I love helping fire and EMS departments with some of the challenges um, that we went, you know, using our lessons learned to advise others. Um, so, uh, you know, definitely always seeking clients and projects. Um, but I think my organizational change skill set, you know, which involves policy, budget, data analysis, leadership development, um, it translates into a lot of different contexts, not just public safety. Um, but that's that's the type of work that I enjoy. Where, what would Amy, go ahead. No, I, I think we're going to ask the same question. What, what's like, is this like a company you have? Like, what, how do, if, if I'm a fire chief that's in dire straits, how do I reach out to you? Thank you. Um, yes, I'm an independent consultant, uh, and my website is amymorrow.com. So you can read all about it there. <laughs> Got it. What would, what would Amy Morrow, the consultant in 2023, tell Amy Morrow, the brand new chief of staff? on her first day knowing what you know like you have the crystal ball what would you tell her i would tell her um listen you don't know everything <laughs> um you are surrounded by uh amazingly talented and compassionate people um who are gonna who support you you know you can feel it as an outsider like you're coming in and you're up against the world but um we had a ton of support. We, we just had a workforce that um, needed the resources to do their jobs better. Um, and I think early on they saw that Chief Dean and I were committed to, to getting to that result. Um, and I, you know, uh, yeah, I would say um, keep an open mind and, um, you know, data and information is one thing. It's not everything. Um, the people part of management is really important. And I, I learned a lot from chief Dean and kind of the strategies I, I explained earlier. Um, and that helped me grow as a manager and a leader. Um, and so the, the sort of latter two thirds of my tenure, um, that was very rewarding was to actually, um, put together a team. Um, and we worked really well together and, and I, I had really talented people working with me. Um, 
that was very rewarding and, and they were part of our success. So, so 2016, Amy calls you and says that the chief, the medical director just relied beat up in the media. This is so much negative media attention. What, what advice do you have for that chief of staff that's through that may be going through that right now? I would say stay focused um, in the moment right now. Nothing you can say will will convince people that um, that maybe the things being said are not true. So what you need to do is just focus um, on what you guys were going to do anyway, and uh, it'll be OK. Amy, I think you got to write a book. I think so. I would love that, to. This do you think people awful. would care? Absolutely. Whenever I talk about yes. that, people are like, "You gotta, you, you gotta know, like, what's your hook? Like, why is it important?" And I'm so, like, "That's people, bullshit." People I'm sorry. Listen, I, no, listen. Uh, I can tell you why it would be important. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. First of all, screw the hook, right? Yeah. Write something, and if people that that's you know, people told us about that about the podcast when we started the podcast. When I tell you, oh, what's your good? No. Listen, if you make a good product, people are going to flock to it. And you obviously, through, we've been talking for an hour and 22 minutes at this point, and you're the expert. I There's so many Instagram reel clips that Josh ha, is, has because uh, you've had so many good tidbits of information that folks need to hear. Uh, I did cut off Josh, though, though so it's good. So uh, we, me and Moose talked with actually one of my chiefs uh, back over the summer, and we talked about leadership in fire ems and how i brought up that while there has been a new resurgence of uh, leadership conferences and books and it being on social media and figuring out how to do this thing because leadership in fire and ems is um while it is military-esque and there are military portions to it unfortunately there's people that don't get the right type of leadership experience and training uh because they they are in a, a vacuum possibly you know they can be under one officer until they become an officer and now they have that very microcosm experience a book like yours can give them the perspective of a civilian that is not you, you are not jaded you don't have any as you guys talked about you didn't have internal baggage when you came into the job you and chief dean uh so you don't have the internal baggage of like a firefighter like we have our own preconceived notions and that can be that can come out in a fire leadership book but you can show hey how do we work on this to uh better a department better our delivery to the citizens and like how do i you know talk to people and get the real message and be that relatable person uh so there's there's a lack of uh decent fire leadership education right now it's building. There are there are some great ones out there, and it's building. But uh, I think the civilian side, because it's not a common thing, we don't see the civilian leadership side in in this job because your position is a unique one that is only used in a small amount of fire departments. So and you got this. Yeah, and really... I, I I am an advocate. I, I I think there is value in it. Sorry, Cody, go ahead. No, I was going to say you have this really fantastic like what uh i heard it phrased one way uh called meta leadership your meta that from being positioned the way that you were in you've got some in you've got some influence down the chain of command by by decree that the chief gave but you've also got this incredible uh you position for this incredible ability to influence across 
the chain of command and definitely up the chain of command. And that's where, you know, a lot of the, to, to Josh's point, there are tons and tons of, and volumes and volumes of, of books out there on how to lead people day to day, how do you lead down the chain of command, how do you lead down the chain of command. And there's a lot out there for once you put on the white shirt, what the hell are you supposed to do? How do I interface with political uh, stakeholders? How do I interface with the general public? Um, I'm used to talking to firefighters and paramedics all day long. And as Moose can attest to, I can, I'm mildly profane anyway, and that doesn't go well, you know, with the general public. Well, I've done well this. I've done well this time. Um, you know, I, you know, how do you how do you communicate? What matters to them? And I think I think Amy, you've got a a, a really good background to. to be able to contribute something super meaningful to that community. Thank you. I, um, I mentioned leadership development. So one of the first things we did was to, to issue a leadership development plan um, because our, our employees told us a lot of what you just said. I mean, they, they, their training is in EMS and firefighting, and then they become a deputy chief and they're in charge of like a multi-million dollar corporation. Right. Um, and so we, uh, and I think it's important to to empower people in uniform to be able to do it. I, I wouldn't advocate replacing them with civilians, right? Because that that's creates problems. So it's so we developed a curriculum um, at every rank in the academy for leadership development, and we, you know, they gradually got increased skills. And I taught a bunch of classes, just talking about the things we've talked about today. So the history of DC, the structure of our government, um, using data to make decisions, uh, organizational change, that sort of thing. Um, and so I, my hope is, and I'm really proud that, you know, we've had hundreds of um, company officers now go through that curriculum. And I, I just know that it's going to help make our department strong well into the future. Um, I did, Mustafa, if you don't mind, I did want to share something on the kind of civilian. You can say whatever you want. Chief of staff thing. So what I wanted to do was read to you two things. Um, the first is um, our first employee survey in 2015. Um, we circulated it and asked a bunch of questions, but also there were sort of like free comment uh, sections available. <laughs> And one of them was, um, uh, there's a civilian chief of staff with no fire suppression experience giving the chief advice. What a joke. Um, so that was sort of some of the reaction when I started. Um, when I announced that I was uh, leaving, I was really overwhelmed by the number of messages I got from firefighters um, thanking me for my contribution. and. Um, you know, wanting me to stay or, or just explaining sort of their evolution and understanding what my role was. Um, and so this, this one is typical. Um, having been in the fire service since I was 16 years old, I, would, I will admit that when some of your initiatives were suggested, I was skeptical as being the typical know-it-all firefighter. However, your belief in those programs and commitment to see them through convinced many a skeptical believer, including me, that they would work and make us a better department for them being in place. Um, so like, I don't really need anything else, but to hear that from our rank and file <laughs> on my way out. Like I, I, I love the impact we had on 
patient care. Um, uh, but hearing that message um, was really overwhelming to me and, and positive. So um, I would say, I, I actually, that's probably what I would read to 2016 Amy Morrow. <laughs> I'd say, you may think that they're looking at you like you're from out of space, but you know, outer space, but like stay focused and, and, um, people will come around eventually. I can't think of a better note to end this, uh, end this <laughs> all. This is a, uh, this was great. Uh, Amy, I want to give the opportunity, any, any closing comments, anything uh, you'd like to talk about before we finish up? Um, I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of good ground. I'm looking at my notes here to see. Um, oh, we didn't really talk about how you, you know, how you improve the culture around EMS in a fire-based organization. Um, yeah, we should I, definitely talk I, about I, that. I, 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 I talked, feel like I talked that could about, be an episode by itself. I, that's yeah. what I was going to say. I think that sounds like a, a whole another episode. <laughs> yeah. If you're be... willing to come back, I hope you're... Uh, oh, I am willing yeah. to come back. Okay. Yeah. yeah, we can save it if you want. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I think that'll be cool. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Amy, for coming on. Uh, I just I do want to give an opportunity to Josh and Cody. Uh, any any closing comments from you guys? No, I'm just going to echo what Moose said. Thank you for being here and talking about this uh, actually very vital bit of uh, of the environment we work in. It's not something talked about. It's something misunderstood a lot. Um, and it was great hearing your what everything you brought to us today and uh, the questions you answered um, and yeah I, I'm looking forward to having you back on and talk about changing the culture of EMS in a fire department because ooh spicy Amy I just want to say thank you for, for coming on and thanks for your insights and things like that and indulging me in some of my ridiculous questions uh, I really do appreciate it and this is the book I talked about the when, common sense uh, way. The common sense way. There's this is actually three books uh, that that he's written, and I suggest every leader and every expiringly uh, aspiring leader uh, pick up all three of them. It's very uh, eye opening and insightful and stuff that you can use in your entire career. But Why don't again, we have an alert medic one book list. We, we should do. have an alert medic one book list. We do. Or, we or, or a book club. Make, we we got to make it club. centralized. It's coming. It's on. It's on the list. <laughs> this is why we have Josh on the team because he thinks ten steps ahead of me. That's like getting called out by the boss on the podcast. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, like I said, Amy, thank thank you so much. Uh, we're, we're really looking forward to you know talking to you again. Um, don't go anywhere. We're just going to finish out the uh, episode, but Josh is going to close us out, and then we'll stop recording. But I'm sure we'll have uh, some things to t talk about after yeah. we stop recording. Yeah, so. Yeah. Let me say thank you before we stop recording. Thank you so much. This has been really fun and um, I appreciate the opportunity and look forward to staying in touch. And amymorrow.com for folks that want to. Uh, amymorrow.com. Yep. Perfect. Josh, you want to close this out? Uh, not to say it again, but thank you for coming on the show, Amy. Uh, for all of our listeners out there, uh, whether it's a good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, pay attention to the social media. Uh, alertmedic1.com, Facebook, Instagram. We got a lot of great stuff coming, guys. We got some awesome guests coming, just like Amy, awesome guests. Uh, and pay attention. T thank you for listening again, uh, and be safe. See ya. <laughs>